so here, another month in graduate school, more things learned, more things to talk about. Um, a lot of sleepless nights, apparently. Most of them recently have been uh, caused by books. Yeah, not so much the school, but that's what I was there, yeah. Specifically in one week. Specifically yeah. in one week. Yeah, we were partaking in the in the release of Iron Flame, like much of book talk, so um, no spoilers. One of us hasn't finished the book yet. I'm going to get chunk in, though. I'm going to get chunk in. I've been short of it. So. For a slow reader, I'm going through it pretty quickly. You're flying through them, yeah. yeah. You're getting there, you're getting there. And uh, of note, Alex is not with us this week, um, because I think a lot of his sleepless nights have been caused by his thesis. His thesis, yeah. <laughs> He's got a bit of a grad school milestone coming up here with the defense of his master's thesis and we will make sure he's with us for the next episode to give everyone an update yeah how that's going and a lot of big moves recently for people so well not physical moves yeah yeah i was really confused i was like where did yes, anyone right. move? hi guys so i'm letting you know i'm moving <laughs> never to be seen that would have been good to know yeah <laughs> <laughs> no we're just doing great stuff and we're continuing on it's exciting Month to month, we just bring interesting things. Yeah, and we're just getting ready to ramp down a semester that I know for at least me has been a bit of a roller coaster. So we're excited to talk a little bit about writing this episode, which I think a lot of us have been doing a lot of recently. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how much it kind of takes over the thing that, that we need to, and then it comes in so many forms, which is part of why the reason we're bringing it up again. I know we briefly touched on it before in previous episodes, but it's just this big thing that is comes in so many different forms and many things that we do. So we thought we would dedicate a little bit more time to talking about that and what our experiences with those are. And I guess Alex's um, input to this right now is he's chugging away at it, so yeah. let us know. At, uh and his disquisition. His disquisition. Which is a word yes. that we were just talking about. And I, I did not know what a disquisition was until about two minutes ago. Um, I'd heard the term and our graduate school just posted on their Instagram like this past week or something. A meme of the, honestly, I don't know what a disquisition is. And at this point, I'm too embarrassed to ask. And I, I don't love relating to graduate school memes sometimes. Yeah. But that one was... Was a little. My favorite thing is that you saw the meme related to it, but then didn't go look up what it was. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I feel that. Because part of it is like I'm not at the point of writing a disquisition. Yeah, like some people are, and so. Uh, Dallas, what did you look up the definition of disquisition? Yeah, was? the definition of disquisition. Bringing up right. We're talking about for viewers who may not know. Yeah, yeah. So you'll a, know. A long or elaborate essay or discussion on a particular subject. So. I'm guessing all of these come up to my understanding. That's what a disquisition is. So all of these theses, dissertations, area papers that we know qualify in exams, depending on the format, yeah. I suppose, would all be considered disquisitions. So. Yeah. Like we didn't know because it's way more broad than I thought it was. Like, yeah. I thought it was like very specific thing. And it's just like pretty much anything. Yeah. Under that definition, really anything can be a disquisition. So. Yeah. Any of those, like, I feel like in graduate school, especially they, they seem like they're those milestone mm -hmm papers like you might have the papers that you're going to submit to a journal and that's just your study but like when they're like a fulfilling milestones yeah. in your program yeah. it seems like that's when disquisition would most likely to be used it's a fun word to say i know it sounds so 
It sounds so uh, official. Official, yeah. It is funny whenever Alex is like, I'm writing my thesis. I want to be like, I'm writing my dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> to like use all those big fun graduate school words. I just refer to everything as disquisition now. Yeah. It definitely took me a few times to be able to actually pronounce it too. Yeah. It's a little funky in there with the Q. There is a Q. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to say that out loud because I don't know if my speech disorder will be able to get it there. <laughs> That's that's so fair. Luckily, <laughs> the ones you're really, I think, gonna have to worry about are thesis, yeah, and area paper and dissertation. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's broad enough that if I don't want to use it, I probably don't you have don't, to. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. But it's a nice all-encompassing term that kind of fits all of those when referring to it, which is nice. And I feel like what's interesting about those that we've talked about so far, like writing a thesis, a dissertation, area paper, um, like my qualifying exam being a literature review, those all seem like papers that are just coming from you. There isn't a whole lot of like collaboration that goes into those, but I do know that a lot of the writing, at least I'm doing right now, and I think, oh, Dallas, I know you just finished a big paper where it required a lot of back and forth and collaboration. Yep. And that's, yeah, another big kind of topic with writing and that. What does that look like when you're writing with other people? There's collaboration, things to everybody kind of reports to, hopefully. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, a big, and it can look very different for different people in different disciplines, which is very interesting, but it's shifting gears from us so used to, even just like school papers, everything is you, you're putting everything, you're researching everything. Um, to then, you know, you're in grad school, you're working on your own research articles or whatnot, and the, or your disquisitions, um, and then moving to working with others. Yeah, I am working on a massive interdisciplinary collaborative project that uh, I am hoping to be done with at the end of this semester because it's been a lot to get. You would think with more people... Like, more hands yeah, make light work, you know? Like, more people, it's just like, oh, we can split this up so much. But I think sometimes with big groups, it gives people an opportunity to be like, oh, someone else will take care of that. And so it, it, it takes a lot to kind of be like, yo, can you just, like, do this one thing for me so that we can we can get this moving? But we're getting there. Figures have been generated, figures have been, captions have been written for them. We have almost a full first draft, so hopefully that will get submitted very soon. Yeah, that is super exciting. It's exciting. I'm, it's, it will be a really good paper when it's, when it's finally out there. And, um, having an interdisciplinary collaboration like this, I think is super valuable and it's been interesting to work with, um, you know, graduate students and faculty in physics, psychology, um, engineering, chemistry, um, and have everyone represented in the work that we're doing. So I know we're kind of all now at the point of graduate school where like, yes, we're still doing research. Obviously we have a lot of time left to get some data and do our research. But those writing tasks are starting to kind of creep up on us. And I don't know about you guys, but my advisor and my lab mates definitely gave me some tips about writing when I first started. And then I wasn't really writing my first year. So I was like, 
Psh, I'm never gonna use that ever. <laughs> and then now that I'm like writing more and I have more writing tasks, I'm like, oh, I completely understand yeah. why that piece of advice was given to me. Yeah, even writing for like a course or a class assignment can look very different from writing for something you want to get out there, depending on the modem in which you want to do it. So yeah, definitely a lot of things you don't you don't think you have to think about so effortlessly, I suppose. And then it's like, oh yeah, I need to really think about this and think about all the little nit nitty gritty stuff that you don't always like really consider. Yeah. Say, a big rule of thumb that seems to come up for a lot of people and I see over and over again and I'm still kind of getting drilled into me is that we, most of the time you want to opt for brief, clear, and accurate or consistent cross writing. And that's something that I'm slowly learning to do because I can be very, um, I don't know, in my writing, I was used to like, I don't know like creative writing is the right term, but like a persuasive writing type mm. of style mm -hmm. that although sometimes is very good, sometimes it's not what you want to get across for scientific um, writing of products. Something I've noticed in my own experiences with writing. Yeah, and I think uh, you said like writing for a course is very different than writing for like your dissertation or thesis or something else in graduate school and that is so true because with courses come deadlines yeah <laughs> and when you're writing for something that's like the whole product of your graduate career or even submitting to a journal unless you're submitting for like a special issue and there's like a certain deadline for it there aren't like hard and fast deadlines for things and so it can be easy to just like keep, keep putting it off putting it off and just pushing your writing test it oh i'll do that next week oh, i'll do that next week and then suddenly it's the end of a semester <laughs> you're like yeah. oh i haven't touched that paper in a hot minute a lot of more uh, a lot more accountability that you have to put on yourself which is definitely been we have all kind of worked with it in our own i think just kind of projects in general but it does look different when you want to get an actual product out and not just continuing to move something forward which has been interesting and this, I think, is where that collaboration element of papers comes in handy because you can tell your collaborators, this is the deadline I want to meet. And then it can be really be, really be a deadline that you're setting for yourself. But yeah. then there's some, like, like yeah. an, an accountability, accountability to other people. It's just like, yeah, that's like I set a December 1st deadline, which I think is when this, this episode will be out. Oh, yeah. So it will be December yeah. 1st, so... Hopefully by the time everyone's listening to this, yeah. I will have at it's least happening. the first full draft of <laughs> the, the scoping review paper that we're working on. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. I don't know about you two and if you have thought about this before, but have you ever... <laughs> And if you have Spongebob. But have you ever wondered how accurate Spongebob is in that, have you ever thought about how Starfish would wear pants? Huh? <laughs> I, it just set the default for me. I guess I haven't done about it since. <laughs> you know, I didn't question them. I just yeah. assumed that that was right. That was yeah. how they would wear pants? Yeah. yeah. No, so it's it's definitely not something I had, like, thought about, but it's definitely something that i saw the headline recently for a new paper science and i was just like what scientists have been thinking about how <laughs> starfish would wear pants and like that's one way to look at it but what the this group um former and colleagues was looking at is like um 
the body patterning in echinoderms. So starfish, which they're actually sea stars because they're not fish, um, are echinoderms and similar to humans, um, they are deuterostomes. So this means that, so basically all animals are just really complicated tubes. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so we have two openings. Over two. <laughs> you, you, you have your mouth and you have your butt. And yeah. so deuterostomes are organisms in which the the butthole um, develops first. And so humans, mm -hmm. that's us. That's the first um, kind of little opening that develops. Sea stars are the same way. And so they were wondering if they had a similar genetic control of like their body patterning. And so we have these things called Hox genes, among other genes that kind of set up um, the patterning and the symmetry and the development of us. Other animals also do. Um, it turns out that sea stars don't really follow a similar pattern to that. And it doesn't appear that they would wear pants. <laughs> Not that that sounds ridiculous. Because like, why would sea stars wear pants? It <laughs> doesn't seem like they have like the same patterning to have the trunk like we do. So the trunk being kind of like the shoulders to the legs. Um, so it doesn't seem like they develop in that way. And the patterning um, is just completely different. And so this is like new, brand new. I think this was published like this month or February 2023. No, accepted September 2023. So yeah, published online oh, yeah. November 1st. So this is brand new, just coming out. Um, research in, ooh, which journal is this? It's a big one, Nature. So Nature, huge. Yep. This is um, definitely going to start setting up some new looks at the development of echinoderms and their body patterning, which is, I think, super fascinating and makes for some really fun figures. I'll say, yeah, the, looking at the figure is very interesting. Check it out. We'll yeah. link it. Developmental biology. They, we do a lot of staining, and so you can see all the fluorescent fun spots where proteins have been tagged. But yeah, we will, we will link it and i will also link to kind of a more like pop science article of it that has a video talking about and kind of showing how starfish would wear pants and how these scientists like hypothesized that like quote unquote legs were developing hmm. so we got the sea stars done yeah what's next what other animal can we determine if they would wear pants I personally think we should do a marshmallow madness bracket of like which way do you think they would and then science can tell us at the end. <laughs> there we go. So instead of like they're fighting, it's like the everyone makes a prediction on how they would wear pants mm -hmm, yeah. and then science reveals how they would wear, how pants, they would wear pants. And then you get the points if you were right. You were right. Yeah. It's almost like a pin the tail on the donkey type situation. Yeah. Like on the dog, on a whale. Whale have whales have residual hips, even though they don't need like hips. And oh, so they yeah. have like um vestigial. That's the word I was looking for. And so there are some animals that you don't think about them having legs, but they have structures that are that came from that same place and show common ancestry. So Wow. Yeah. Recently had a speaker who um, studied a praying mantis and their depth perception, and they made 3D glasses for their praying mantis. I love study. that so much. When they were, there was a video um, about That's them in um, their presentation. What's not discovery? Oh, um, 
Is it National Geographic? National Geographic. She showed us, like, a video about their lab that they did studies with. That's what made me think of it, is putting random things on animals and things. We have to find out, guys. Science Science always needs to know. Science got us like that. (laughs) (laughs) I would say something that I found, like, to kind of hold myself accountable is setting aside time to write in my calendar, like, if it were a meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, Because sometimes I'm just like, oh, well, I need to do these or I need to answer these emails or I need to go complete this form or something when I would, you know, just mentally tap it as like, oh, I could write today. And when I put it in my actual calendar as like, this is my chunk for writing, I think it's definitely helped me and actually kind of juggle a bit more and not postpone things so much. It still happens, I'm not going to lie, but it makes it harder for me to do it if I don't need to. Yeah. I definitely have found um, the Pomodoro method mm-hmm. to be something I never thought I would do. So that's where you like work for however long, take a break for a little bit, and it kind of cycles. So I usually do 25-minute work, 5-minute break. And then every few cycles, it also gives you like a longer break. Mm-hmm. Um, I never thought I would like that because it felt like a lot of context switching, and it would be like, I'm working, and then I have the short little break, and so like my brain would shut off during those five minutes and I wouldn't want to go back to doing it but but man the Pomodoro method with writing plus heyday oh yeah (laughs) that's I think is that new from our last episode I think that might be new from our last episode we're all kind of the famous Odalis Garcia got all of us hooked on heyday (laughs) the phone game yeah so if you catch us anywhere in public anywhere and if our phones are in landscape mode instead of portrait we are probably all playing Heyday. I'm pretty sure when we were at the hockey game yesterday, when David and I came back from getting food, I walked in and I was like, they're definitely going to be playing Heyday right now. Like, in between. <laughs> yeah. Any intermissions in our life and it's Heyday. That's one of my proudest accomplishments. I got everybody on Heyday. Including <laughs> yeah. David. Yeah, including <laughs> David. David. I'm just finally caved. It actually is pretty effective, too, with the uh, um, Pomodoro method, because then... um. I'm very motivated to get to my form, so I'm like, I'm going to do this part really well. <laughs> it's very nice. <laughs> it's about that intrinsic motivation. <laughs> yeah, and and it also points out how important it is to not skip those breaks, because some people will get really tempted to just like, oh, I'm really in a flow, so I want to skip this break. And it's like, no, yeah. it's actually better if you like take a little bit of that time. Mm-hmm. Just feed your animal. <laughs> So yeah right because <laughs> dang it we're gonna play some derby yes <laughs> update we did indeed not place in that derby <laughs> another thing that i didn't think i would find useful and i pride myself on like i wasn't this kind of person and now suddenly i am is i never outlined i hated outlining yeah i didn't like it It i only ever outlined so you you've been there but for me i when i this has been my fun fact for like the last like month because apparently people don't know this about me i did pageants for five years and so i public spoke a lot Mm -hmm. and because of my speech disorder i how i write is very different than how i speak out loud and so if i wrote something out i could not follow it i because i just couldn't and i it wouldn't work and so every time i presented or did speech anywhere i did outlines and everyone thought it was so cool but it was actually just because of a speech disorder and it just wouldn't work (laughs) um and so that's 
So I've always done outlines. I I love outlines. <laughs> I strive by outlines, but that's also it's not. What I you think can it came about from your speech disorder. Speech. It's what your speech disorder can do for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you've definitely seen the benefits in outlining too. It kind of or just your thoughts sometimes. I've realized though, I definitely start by outlining. I don't always follow that outline, mm-hmm. but it definitely gets me going because it's hard when you're just staring at a blank page on your yeah. computer and you're like, okay. Well, I feel like outlines help because I can never write, like, one section at a time. Like, I cannot go through and write one section and then move on to the next section. I always bounce around and, like, Mm. do a few sentences in one section and a few sentences in another section. I definitely wouldn't be able to do that without an outline to know where that information would go to begin with. It also provides a first spot for feedback. I know I don't think I had ever really gotten feedback on outlines, but with, like, almost all of my papers or projects or things I've done in classes here I've gotten feedback from like the instructor of that course like on my Mm. outline to see if like my outline was going in the right direction and then I've also sent it to my advisor for a few things and like this is kind of the direction I've been thinking what do you think and would get some thoughts and stuff in there and then it allows you a spot to like kind of plug in as you go also really great for organizing collaborations because then people can pick a section of the outline Mm. that they think they're gonna work on and be able to work on. I feel like outlines can sometimes be like the hardest part though too at the same time. Like you think you have a structure and then you start writing it and you're like why did I organize it this way? Yeah. Like this is not the flow that it should be going right now. Mm -hmm. So. I feel like that's definitely been my experience. Like it, it makes sense. It gets me started. Like yeah I know where this is going and then I start writing it and it ends up looking nothing like what I originally outlined, but... Or I complicate way too hard on what order to put things in. Yeah, so yeah. I think a lot of that, too, has to do with framing, and that goes into kind of, like, where is this going? Like, is this something you're publishing? Is it yeah. disquisition? Because then that can change kind of how you frame Definitely, things. Yeah. And that's, it's just crazy how even little details, like, well, I guess not so little details, but they make a difference even as it's just a getting started and outlining, so... I, um, for a long time didn't necessarily love feedback. It always kind of felt like a criticism of what I do, but it's really just learning to be comfortable with that. And you're like, you know what? I did not phrase that right. Or what was I trying to say with this? I don't even know anymore. Um, and I've, I've come to, um, get comfortable with feedback. Feedback is a different, a, a whole different beast in graduate school, it seems like. But it's been very helpful and really helps me see where I'm learning, where I'm maybe falling a little that I need to kind of catch up on, but it's kind of a little progress checks. Feedback. Get it. <laughs> I think your point about, like, it always felt like a criticism of my work, a thing is so eldest mm-hmm. daughter of you. <laughs> and Coming from like, two other eldest daughters. <laughs> two other eldest daughters. Like, <laughs> I feel you so much that you're like, You'll, like, get a draft back, and there'll be, like, a million... Like, I sent a draft of a paper to my lab, and immediately, within, like, half an hour, I had, like, 50 comments on my Google Doc, and I was, like... Yeah. Like, like, what? Like, I was so panicked. I was just, like, did I not do this right? Did I... Like, such imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. But then realizing that it's... If they... If they didn't care... Right. They wouldn't provide feedback. Mm -hmm. So that goes for advisors, lab mates, those kinds of things. And so... It's again a reframing issue, <laughs> and uh, if I if it didn't matter to them, and if they didn't think I could do it, they wouldn't bother putting in the time. 
One thing I do that I don't know if it's actually necessarily a trick to avoid that or if I just get overwhelmed and end up doing it. I feel like I tend to need to get feedback before I even get to like my like first draft. So like when I first send it into like my advisor or like professor or whatever to get feedback, like I can guarantee like it's not like a full first draft because I get too overwhelmed and I'm like, I don't know where to go with this. So you just need to give me feedback now and then like, no, it's not done at all i just need feedback now and then i'll keep going and so i don't know if it's necessarily a trick but also at the same time like it's not my like actual i was like i know it's done so i know it's not great but like Mm -hmm. you just need to give me feedback now and then i can like my brain can process and what's going on so yeah get feedback early and get feedback often yes (laughs) it's like that joke where it's like vote early and vote often even though you you should only vote once in every election (laughs) yeah But the after part is in every election. Yes, the, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Definitely. Also, I appreciate that Dropbox doesn't give me notifications like apparently Google Drive does, because that would drive me a little bit insane when getting feedback. I definitely have to look at feedback first a good time, just kind of skim it through and give myself at least a few hours or something before I then tackle them. Yeah. And and Google Drive, it, it, like, sends you an email. To me, I get an email in, like, my other inbox. It's not, like, in my okay. focused inbox. Okay. So if I didn't go in my email, I wouldn't see it. You and I don't have, like, I don't get notifications for emails that go to that other mm-hmm. other box. So that was definitely a, my, my imposter syndrome was was making me anxious. But it was, it was great. And the feedback provided by um, the postdocs in my lab... Um, the undergraduate I'm working with and my advisor was was great. Um, that paper has taken a little bit of a back burner <laughs> currently because I'm trying to get that scoping review paper out and it's that Hackerson at all that's that's really <laughs> really driving me really driving me. <sighs> kind of hitting back on the disquisitions. I'm saying that, sorry. Um, disquisitions. Um, we're at this stage where we're kind of beginning to uh, learn about those, talk about those, but um, I think our perspectives now are interesting, something we can look back on and just in those beginning steps and what those are for us. Because for me, it's a lot of, what are these? What do they look like? I have no clue. Mm-hmm. So I know definitely when I was at the proposal stage for the master's in our program, I just sent out an email to all the students in our program that were like the years ahead of us. And I was like, hey, would you mind sending me a copy of your proposal? I have no clue what this thing is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And everybody was, I, I think everybody's actually might have sent me their proposal. I was like, here's what mine looks like and sent along some of their tips as well, which I found super helpful when I was first getting started under this notion of, I have no idea what this thing is. And that gave me a better picture for getting started. So my tip would be to ask for examples. I will say people tend to be very helpful and they want to see you succeed. And if it's, you know, just sending over a copy, yeah, they're like, sure, somebody can look at the work that I've done. So I found that super helpful. Yeah, senior lab members, having graduate students ahead of you or postdocs are such like an invaluable resource. Like, I've probably said it before, but Tara is getting a thank you chapter in my dissertation. <laughs> Not just, like, a paragraph, like, a, like a chapter, <laughs> because she's just been so great at just, like, answering questions quick, providing examples, stuff like that. And with 
I mean, a proposal is a great thing to give an example of. One of my lab members who graduated recently, their dissertation is like 400 pages long. And so wow. it's just like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do that. I mean, my advisor has already said, get that number out of your mind. You don't <laughs> need to write anything that long. And so it's also good to get an example of like what's um what is too much to like yeah, put on yourself you um, like yeah what what should be expected out of your project versus a project someone else has done because everyone is different and so where 400 pages might be necessary for someone's dissertation right. yours might not be quite that long which is all right but it would be a very satisfying chunk of a book to yeah. have on your bookshelf when you because you can order your dissertation like hardbound yeah. book which i'm 100 percent doing um mm. and so that would be really satisfying just like yeah a little hunk of paper on <laughs> your on your bookshelf another thing to kind of keep in mind and in going into these is knowing how much time these things are going to take they're meant to be milestones in your program so they're going to take a while, I think, um, and I've been kind of working on it myself. Sometimes they're, they're on timelines that sometimes seem like their own. You're always, as long as you're always working on it, I think it's okay that things take time. Um, and that's something to keep in mind moving forward. You can't expect to just like chug it out in a weekend or something. Like no. These are big milestones and keeping that in mind, I think, gives you back some of that sanity of having to write something at that level. Everything will always take longer than you expect it to be. Yeah. Every time. That is Anything. so true. Everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You might think you got it down, but always add some more time. Yeah. It was one of the pieces of advice that I remember from an outgoing lab member. She had just graduated as I was coming in. Um, she said, don't put off writing the data chapters of your dissertation until the end of your graduate school like keep up with it because otherwise you're going to be trying to remember stuff from like your second year of graduate school in your like fifth or sixth year of graduate school mm. and that's a long time for memory to be working yeah it's no sensory memory yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and with it you, you bring up also to another good point um of planning ahead when possible Sometimes you can't see stuff coming, but when it's possible, you can save yourself some kind of headaches from trying to be, like, scrambling to find notes from years ago. Why did I do that? Why? Why? Then you can be like, that's exactly why I did it. Looking, tracking down notes, whatever it might be. Um, something that I think we've all kind of benefited from um, is that in classes that we take, sometimes there's a final assignment. And although we mentioned those look very different from writing something that's meant to be kind of a different product, it gets you started and even just gathering articles, you know, what is the scope that you're, or like a framing that you're kind of going for for a certain project. And that's something that I highly recommend. Um, if you're able to kind of connect it for something that you're already going to do and it gives you those that jumping start, do it. Do it. Yeah, I think that's something that's so different from undergrad to graduate school. I mean, obviously we're in terminal degree programs, and so that's just already different. But, like, the projects and the curriculum and things are there specifically to, like, go towards your milestone and your degrees. And there's, like, almost always ways, almost always a way to, like, weave that final project in any of your grad classes mm -hmm. into something that can serve you in your graduate career. Like, currently I'm in a class that's 
kind of completely unrelated <laughs> to a lot of the things I do, but the final project, I was able to kind of turn it into the starting place for one of my qualifying exams. And so it's like, I was going to be writing this paper anyway. Mm -hmm. So you might as well make it work for you. And so you don't have to write another paper on top of that. I did do that for all my classes, but then when I go back to, like, look at what I did, it's like, wow, this is how, when I learned how much my writing has evolved. I was like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, that's, that's when you know. Like, first yeah, you're like, okay, I guess I won't be really using this for anything unless I want to reword, like, almost everything in here. But it's nice, like, practice to be able to relate it back to what you're going to use. If at not, the very least, it. your thinking started there, yeah. which is really good to just kind of have that kind of starting too. I've, I've definitely been there too, where I, like, did something for a course hoping to turn it into something, and then I look at it and I'm like, well, that's not really what I need anymore, but it got that ball rolling, yeah. which is nice. Also gets you feedback from a broader audience too, like, not all of the instructors you're taking classes from are on your committee or you'll get feedback from them on everything. And so mm -hmm. it's nice to hear from like a wider variety of instructors on what they think about what you're doing. And they might know of some pocket of citations that you don't know about. And so they provide you with another name to look at and then you have to go read a million more papers. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing. To write papers requires so much reading. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Which I don't know how we read books to the level that we read them when we spend so much of our professional life reading papers. That was my holdup with like reading for fun for a while. I was like, I just, I'm reading all the time. It is a different kind of reading though. And that's nice. But I'll read more like non-fiction books like in the summer when I'm not reading papers as much mm. yeah. so I was like I cannot yeah just continue to read on that yeah so then I guess what comes after reading papers writing it right. comes publishing yeah <laughs> which I think we brought this up on a previous episode but when I found out like it it requires money yeah. To publish in journals, I was like, excuse me, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, whoever thought science was, like, neutral and not gatekeepy, like, yeah. you're wrong. Because <laughs> so it's, it's bad. <laughs> like, those big, in biology, when we think about those, like, big, um, really high-impact journals, like, mm -hmm. cell, science, mm -hmm. nature, like, yeah. it's so much money. Yeah. And they also want your papers to be just, like, ridiculous, like, ridiculously short. Oh, like yeah. You don't get a ton so of space yeah, in, like, yeah. science and nature. Mm -hmm. And your methods become, like, a size three font in the back. Yeah. It's like, okay, I actually wanted to read that. So, like, yeah. if I could make yeah. it readable, yeah. that would be great. And that just kind of speaks to the important, because it's, you know, it's actually taking money from your pocket or somebody's pocket, pocket somewhere, money, um, Speaks to the importance of finding a good journal when you're writing um, and making sure that that's a good home for what your writing is, what your project is. Um, and that could be a big chunk of also how you write stuff. Like I mentioned, the framing of it. If it's like, for example, for me, if I'm writing for a health journal, like a health psychology journal, I'm going to frame my, write, my um, background as more health related than I might social or anything along those lines. So... There's a lot that goes into that, too, that I wouldn't necessarily think about when I was first starting. Yeah, we were having a whole discussion about where we were going to publish. So we're doing a scoping review on alternative grading practices in science education. 
and this is that project where we have biologists, microbiologists, psychologists, chemists, physicists, engineers, all working on this project. And we're like, mm, where are we going to put this? And then it turns out there's a journal called Disciplinary and Interdisciplinary Science Education Research. And we were <laughs> like, huh. <laughs> That kind of sounds like us. Yep. In fact, it sounds exactly like us. Yeah. So we were able to figure out the journal before we got too far into writing a draft so that we could make sure we were following their like word requirements, length requirements, their figure requirements. Like, yeah, the goal of the journal um, before we get too far into it. And so uh, coming soon to that journal near you, I guess, <laughs> hopefully. And it's also open source. And so if... Like that is very nice. being an open source journal or letting your science be available like openly, if that's important to you, that's something that not all journals do and important to take note of. Yeah, something to, yeah, kind of evaluate um, when you're looking at multiples, maybe you want to see what you want more, who you want reading your work and all of that plays into that choice of a journal. So, you've submitted to a journal. What now? Um, outcomes can range, but it seems they all fit under the three of you're either rejected, and that comes in different stages. Um, you get a revise and resubmit. Yay! Yay! Really the goal chunk of the time, that's what's going to happen. And then you get accepted. That's exciting. Um, but it's a whole range of kind of things happening there. Um mm -hmm. So do we want to, I, or at least I really wanted to point out is uh, rejection rates are really high. Sometimes that's something um, I didn't necessarily think about too much, um, but there are high. So kind of the chances that you're going to get rejected are a lot higher sometimes than what you would think. Um, I was able to find a resource that say that APA, so that's the American Psychological Association Journals, uh, have rejection rates like somewhere between 63 and 75 percent of article submitted to them so personally that makes me feel a bit um a little bummed out because it's like oh what do you mean i'm submitting something and it's more likely to get rejected than not that just speaks kind of the importance of where you're sending stuff how you frame your um work and how that kind of sometimes is not going to play as much as an of an important part because sometimes it's just not what the journal is looking for at that point and that's something to keep in mind and not get too discouraged about which of course is easier said than done i think another thing to point out is these things take time and yeah. so you're going to submit your paper and then you're going to celebrate the fact that you even like submitted, submitted it, it. Yep. because like how much work goes into that um is definitely important um and that revise and resubmit i feel like that's what i hear everyone's like ah yep i'm in the r and r yeah. so we got a deadline in like two weeks and so we've got to turn around and um, make reviewer two happy. Yeah. That's the joke is that reviewer two just rips you apart. Another so meme we can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we've all, we've all been there. We've all had some reviewer two <laughs> comments that, that stick with you. Sometimes they stick with you and that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it definitely, definitely happens. I mean, for the most part, reviewers should be there to help you improve your work. Kind of it's really readability speakability apparently too um, um impact and just relevance to the journal and also just more widely to the science so i would just it, it's kind of hard with reviewer comments 
sometimes they, like you mentioned, they stick with you, not for the best reasons, but you still want to take care in addressing those in a way that's appropriate, that still aligns with what you want to put out in that labor bill. So considering these people's, you know, unpaid time and labor that went into reviewing this for hopeful, hopefully uh, publish publication. And then the next step is waiting for people to cite you. Yeah, that also I feel like is going to be super exciting when you start to see the citations pile up. Yeah, on somewhere. Yeah, that Google Scholar and the numbers start to tick up. Yeah. Oh, so exciting! We're all very early, early in this here. Early in this, yeah. Quite at the point of like I have like a hundred citations. Right. Like it's like I got one. It's like yeah. (laughs) Like maybe someday. So maybe someday you'll look us up on Google Scholar and we'll be cranking out papers being cited left and right. But for now, we're just grinding away and writing. Yep. That's where we're at now. And hopefully in a few, in in some time, we'll we'll be there. Yeah. A lot of days at Caribou. Yep. Yep. Writing. Do love that. Do love that. Yeah. It's good to have a group of friends to go sit at a table with, and then you can laugh about stupid stuff on your breaks. Yeah. <laughs> like when you all pull out your phones and start playing Heyday. Hey yep, yep. <laughs> Writing tip. Find a coffee shop to work at. Yeah. Yeah, one that doesn't close at 2 p.m. on a Saturday. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Always so check the hours of a coffee shop before <laughs> you go. For more information on today's episode, visit scientistsintraining.com. That's scientistsintraining.com. See you next month.